my life in prison for a crime I didn't commit. I need the world to know what happened and how it happened. Injustice Anywhere presents Snow Files, the wrongful conviction of Jamie Snow and how they got away with it. Snow Files, Episode 5, Hindsight is 2020. The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. There was a string of armed robberies in McLean County, so many in fact that a task force was formed. Jamie was implicated in one of these armed robberies that occurred in February of 1991. On April 12, 1991, a warrant was released for Jamie's arrest for armed robbery for the Freedom Oil gas station. And I was a little pissed off because when I called my sister from the county jail, she was crying. And she was asking me about the Clark thing, you know, did you, do you have anything to do with this, you know, this murder or whatever? And I was like, well, you know, what are you talking about? She was like, you know, they, they said that you're a suspect in this other case. So the first thing I did was, you know, what are you, you know, what are you telling my sister this, this stuff about this other case, you know? And, and he was like, you know, we had to take a, you know, we had to take a look at you, you know, and, and it, that was it, you know, they were more concerned about the case that I'd been arrested for. The guy that actually committed the armed robbery ended up pleading guilty to it. And he ended up going to the grand jury and telling the grand jury, you know, that he didn't give me any of the money, that he did it all by himself. So, you know, I was being arrested in April of 91. I was being arrested under uh, the statute of accountability. I wasn't the one with the weapon. 
weapon, but they were saying that I was accountable for this other person's actions. The very next day after I, I was talking to, after we got back to the police station, Detective Crow went home, Detective Thomas and Bernardini were questioning me about the case that I'd been arrested for. They were asking me a bunch of questions about it, and we ended the, the interview, and they booked me into the county jail. The very next day, Detective Thomas went to the grand jury and testified under oath, and we're going to put it up there and let you see his testimony from April of 91. The very next day, he went and testified that, you know, I made these incriminating statements about the case I've been arrested for, the yard robbery at Freedom Gas Station, that, you know, I want to guarantee some assurances that I wasn't the one who actually committed the crime, that they explained to me that, you know, it was up to the state's attorney to, uh, you know, if they could do anything, but, you know, they tell the state's attorney of my cooperation. Tina Griffin asked him specifically, she said, you know, have you had a chance to talk to Mr. Snow? And he said, yes. And, and she said, what specifically did he tell you about this case? The uh, armed robber at the Freedom Gas Station, that's when he went into the hole. He wanted guaranteed assurances, this and that, and all this stuff. The very next day after that interview, you know, he, he was testifying about these statements about the case I've been arrested for. The following is an excerpt from the 1991 grand jury testimony from Sergeant Thomas concerning Jamie's involvement in the Freedom Oil gas station robbery. Question, and just yesterday had a chance to actually track Mr. Snow down, is that correct? Answer, day before yesterday, he was arrested by the Webster Grove, Missouri Police Department. Question, and did you as well as other officers or at least one other officer had a chance to actually meet Mr. Snow yesterday? Answer, yes, I picked him up along with Detective Charles Crow. We picked him up at the St. Louis County Jail and brought him back up to Bloomington. Question, did you have a chance during your contact with him to discuss this, specifically the Freedom Oil case with him? Answer, upon arrival at the station, Charlie went home and Sergeant Michael Bernardini with the Illinois State Police DCI Task Force 6, who is assigned to the task force, the Bloomington Homicide Task Force, along with myself and several others. Sergeant Bernardini and I did the interview. Question. Now, prior to asking him any questions about that, you read him his Miranda rights? Answer. Yes. Question. And what information did he give you about the Freedom, his involvement in the Freedom Wall robbery? Answer. He didn't deny it. He was wanting assurances. He said he would be able to explain everything that he didn't actually do the armed robbery, but he wouldn't discuss it until he had assurances, which we told him we cannot. We have no authority to make any type of deals like that. That's up to the state's attorney. Mrs. Griffin, I don't believe I have any other questions. Does anybody else? Question from the grand jury. You said that Jane Snow was, you found out, is a lookout outside. Did he possess a gun or has anything come forward that he had a gun or was he just standing outside the building? Answer, no. He just, he was just standing outside. Question, but he got half the money for standing outside? Answer, yes. There's the accountability that Miss Griffin can explain that to you at a later time. Now, I got indicted. They eventually dropped the charges. Jamie was held in jail for four months while the state investigated this robbery. He was released from jail in August of 1991 with all charges dropped. I didn't do the freedom robbery. Somebody else did it. He pled guilty to it. They tried to get him to 
they were going to give him probation. And this is from him. He told me that they offered him probation and said, and I mean, they know. They knew that he was the one that actually went in there and, and robbed the lady. And he told me that they offered him probation, that they'd give him probation and that they would transfer his probation out of the county. All they wanted him to do was say that he had given me half the money. And they would they give him probation and transfer it out out of the county because him giving me half of the money would have made me accountable for his actions, which he, he ended up testifying to the grand jury that he didn't give me any of the money. So I didn't I didn't do the robbery. In June of nineteen ninety one Lead murder investigator Detective Charles Crow approached Jamie about a lineup for the Clark Station case. Jamie said he was not going to be in it. Against his better judgment, Jamie eventually participated. Carlos Luna, Juan Luna, Danny Martinez, and Gerardo Gutierrez all viewed that lineup, and all were unable to identify Jamie as the person they saw leaving the Clark Station on the night of the crime. They forced me to stand in a lineup, and I say forced because that's exactly what they did. They forced me to stand in, in a lineup. And, you know, I had an attorney at the time named Richard Quartz. He was a public defender. And he came to me and he said, look, you know, he said, they want you to stand in a lineup for this for this homicide case. And, you know, I asked him, I'm like, well, should I? You know, at the time, I, I wasn't really concerned about that, you know, and I, and I was like, well, should I? And he was like, well, you know, my, my advice to you as your attorney is no. He said there are plenty of people in prison for crimes they didn't commit based on faulty eyewitness identification. So I, I would tell you no. And I'm like, okay, fine. I tell them I'm not going to do it. It was a really short amount of time later. I get a letter from Mr. Quartz in the mail saying, hey, you know, there's been a change. They're going to make you stand in a line. You know, you don't have a choice. And, you know, I was really upset about that because you know, he had just told me that I didn't have to, and then all of a sudden now he's telling me that I do have to. I hadn't been in front of a judge. Nobody had shown me a court order telling me I had to do it, so I was more angry than I was afraid. When I got down there, I mean, I, I was pissed off. You know, I didn't want to stand in the lineup, and it wasn't out of a fear of being identified. I was just really pissed off. I just didn't want to do it. When it was over with, and I mean, I, they made a big deal about it, but the bottom line is, 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 you know, they didn't have to force me into the lineup. They didn't have to physically put me into it. I went in there and I stood and I, I stood for the lineup. And when it was over with, you know, I asked my attorney, I was like, okay, so, you know, what's up? And he says, you're all good. You know, nobody identified you. So you can imagine my surprise when years and years and years later, I find out that Carlos Luna had pointed at me and said, you know, I looked like the guy that he saw, but the state used that against me. They said it was a, um, you know, my, my not wanting to stand in that lineup was some sort of a consciousness of guilt. What the court didn't let us present at trial was the testimony from Detective Charles Crow. Detective Crow had testified in my co-defendant's trial that when they were going around the county jail looking for people to stand in the lineup, there were numbers of guys, there were a number of guys that were, you know, when they found out what the lineup was for, they were like, oh, hell no, no way. They let that testimony in at my co-defendant's trial, which was found not guilty. I think it was important for the jury to, to know that 
I wasn't the only one that didn't want to stand in that lineup. And it wasn't out of a consciousness of guilt. People just find out what you're being asked to stand in a lineup for, and they're just like, oh, hell no, no way. That testimony came out in Susan's trial, and, and she was found not guilty. But the court wouldn't allow me to present it, you know, in, in, in my trial. So, you know, I, I just want to keep it real with you guys, you know. I, I just want you to know the whole story. There's no way that I'm going to be able to get you to fully believe in me and, and 100%, you know, uh, trust in me if I don't give you uh, all the information and even the information that, you know, may not paint me uh, in, in the best the best of light. But I, I think it's important for you guys to know it. During his trial nine years later, the state was allowed to introduce evidence that Jamie was reluctant to participate in that lineup and had to be told that he could not refuse. At the start of trial, the prosecutor, Tina Griffin, generously elaborated in her opening remarks. She stated, In June of 1991, Bloomington police conducted an in-person lineup at the McLean County Jail. The defendant was asked to participate in that lineup, and he refused. The defendant was visibly nervous, visibly shaking, and he continued to refuse. He was told he really didn't have a choice. He had to participate in the lineup, and he still refused. He was told that if you don't voluntarily come into the lineup, officers are going to assist you, pick you up, going to hold you up in the lineup if necessary. But you don't have the right to refuse. You have to participate. And he still refused. And he was still visibly shaken. And finally, when officers approached him and began to grab him to take him into the lineup, it was only then that he walked on his own into the lineup room, and he continued to be visibly nervous, visibly shaken. In the testimony and and what I've read, and I can't point to exactly where I read this, but they do make a big deal about you refusing to do it. You weren't going to do it till Quartz came down or you talked to Quartz. Then they, then you didn't even go up there until they threatened to shackle you to the thing. I mean, that's what people are going to read. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, I, that's true. I, I didn't want, I wasn't going to do it until I talked to Quartz, you know, because I was, uh, I was pissed. Um, and even today, uh, you know, all these years later, I'm still pissed about it. I, I still wonder uh, if it was legal for them to do that. I mean, they didn't have a court order. If they'd have wanted to get my DNA, they would have had to take me in front of a judge and get a court order to take my DNA. They couldn't have just come to my cell and, and, um, and held me down and took my DNA. You would have had to have a court order. They didn't have a court order to force me to stand in line, so I, I still wonder if it was all above board, but, but yeah, I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to do it until courts got there, because I wanted to know what the hell was going on, and they make a big deal about it, I, I wish they would have uh, took me into that lineup and uh, had me uh, shackled or was holding me up. Uh, you know, visibly, visibly forcing me to stand in the lineup. I wish they would have done that. That would have completely tainted the whole, the whole lineup beyond belief. But you know, um, in in hindsight, you know, I I should have just, I should have just, I should have just did it. You know, I was just pissed that I had a, I had an attorney telling me I didn't have to do it. 
and his advice to me was, his legal advice to me was, don't do it. And then the next thing I know, <laughs> the state's attorneys and detectives are showing up and they're they're forcing me to do it. And, you know, I mean, I, 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 I was more angry than I was scared, but in the back of my mind, I was thinking, you know, is the fix in? Officer Russell Thomas also observed the lineup, and he also testified to Jamie's unwillingness to participate. There was no evidence that he was visibly shaken or nervous during the lineup, contrary to the representations made by the prosecutor. However, during closing arguments, the prosecutor stated as follows. In June of 91, there was an in-person lineup down at the jail, and you've heard repeatedly about how this defendant refused to participate. Even though he had an attorney present and he had multiple chances to talk to his attorney, he still refused to participate. He was visibly upset and shaken. Only when officers Bengal and Cox approached him to physically put him in the lineup, only then did he stand on his own in the lineup. Those are not the actions of an innocent man. Rather, that is circumstantial evidence of the defendant's consciousness of guilt. This defendant would like you to believe that those were not actions of a guilty person, but rather they would be actions of someone innocent who was concerned with being misidentified. And you'll recall the defendant played down his resistance. He wanted you to believe that the only thing he was concerned about was that he have his attorney there to be a witness for the lineup. And so he brought his former attorney, Mr. Quartz, to try to support his position. Well, that was the problem. Mr. Quartz couldn't support the defendant's position. I was just pissed off. I, I didn't do it. You know, I didn't commit the crime, and I didn't want nothing to do with it. I didn't want to have no part of it. But Jamie's reluctance to participate in the lineup was in fact consistent with that of an innocent person who feared misidentification. Nearly two years after this lineup, on November 15, 1993, lead investigator Charles Crow cleared Jamie of Bill Little's murder based on the fact that he did not fit the suspect description. The very first thing they did when they picked me up in St. Louis was Detective Thomas came up to me and he looked at my chin. He grabbed my chin. He was moving my chin around. He was looking at my chin. He was looking at my ears. He was looking for a scar on my chin or an earring in my ear, you know, earring holes from earrings or an earring in, in my ear based on the description by Gerardo Gutierrez. So they believed Gerardo Gutierrez was the one who saw the killer. They, they knew of everything that we've already told you guys about Danny Martinez and, and uh, Carlos Luna. So, I mean, it, they, they knew that it was probably Gutierrez who actually may have seen the killer. After being cleared during the investigation, Jamie went on to lead a normal life and started a successful tree cutting service. Detective Crow retired in 1997, leaving the case unsolved. When the cold case detectives reopened it, they re-scrutinized Jamie based off the 1991 armed robbery and they began gathering jailhouse snitches to justify their suspicions. Jamie was arrested for the murder on September 29, 1999. Now fast forward to the year 2000, December of 2000, at my trial for the for the murder of William Little, the same detectives came in and testified. Now, all of a sudden, 10 years later, those statements were about the, the homicide case. Now, I wanted guarantees and assurances about the homicide case. Now, I could explain everything about the homicide case. 
when I finally got the grand jury testimony and seen that they had testified to the grand jury about these these statements and attributed them to an unrelated case and then came in 10 years later and attributed the same exact statements to the case that I was on trial for, it was unbelievable. And it's still unbelievable to me today. The following is an excerpt from Sergeant Thomas's testimony in Jamie's trial in 2001 concerning Jamie's interview upon his arrest in 1991 for the Freedom Oil gas station robbery. Question. Now, during the course of the conversation with the defendant, did he ask any other questions of you and Agent Bernardini? Answer. He wanted to know what would happen to him if he knew something. He was asking for guarantees or deals. Wanted to know if something... I believe his questioning was, or his question was, in reference to any type of sentencing or something like that. Question. And what response did you and Agent Bernardini furnish to him when he would ask you what would happen to him if he gave the information that he had? Answer. We advised we were not allowed to make deals or guarantees, that we would take any information and forward it to the state's attorney's office. If you can get members of a task force to testify falsely, you can get every jailhouse informant, every single person looking for a, a reward. It's no problem getting anybody else to testify falsely. That's what they did. They testified falsely. And Detective Thomas testified at the murder trial that after that interview, he believed one of two things, either that I was involved in the murder or that I knew something about it. He didn't know which. He just, he thought it was one of those have two. have one minute left. When Thomas says, you know, I thought he was involved or he was there, he knew something about it, right? I really want you guys to think about something, right? Here's here's uh, two members of a task force, a multi-jurisdictional task force, put together to try to solve these cases. So I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. They're like the top of their class, you know, they're like educated and, and, and I don't know, maybe smart. What I really want you guys to think about is what did they do with the information from that interview? Right? You think I'm involved in this homicide? Your your uh, radar is seeping now. Your interest is peaked. You think I was involved in this homicide? You believe I've made these these incriminating statements? What do you do with that? I know what I would do, and I'm not even a, a detective. I mean, they, they didn't go to my sister's house and knock on the door and say, hey, can we come in and look around? We're looking for these items that were stolen from the gas station. We're looking for a, a long black trench coat or a brown windbreaker or a motorcycle jacket or a 22 or a 25 caliber handgun or ball caps or whatever. They didn't go to my sister's house and do that. They didn't go to my house. They knew where I lived. They didn't go to my house and knock on the door and ask, ask my wife, hey, do you mind if we come in and look around? We're looking for these items that were stolen from the gas station. They didn't do that. You know, they didn't go to any of my friend's house knocking on the door and looking for this stuff. You know what they did? They went to the grand jury and testified that those statements were about the case that I'd been under arrest for, and they went around knocking on people's door to try to continue to, to, to gather evidence against me about the case that I'd been arrested for. So, you know, I mean, you have to try to read between the lines and put a little common sense into it. They took statements that I'd made about a case that I'd been arrested for, testified under oath, that that's what those statements were about, and then 10 years later came in and, and testified that now the states were about the murder case. And it worked so well because I couldn't say anything about the other case that I'd been arrested for. I mean, I wish now I look back on it and I, I wish what I would have did was just told the jury, okay, look, 
have to come clean. I have to tell you, you know, there was another case that I was arrested for and just put it all out on the table for him and just said, look, this is what I've been arrested for. This is what these statements were about. They've already testified under oath that this is what these statements were about. But I guess at the time we were probably, or I was, I was worried or afraid that they would just automatically, okay, man, he was arrested for this other, uh, for this other robbery. You know, it's, he must have done this one too. It would have just, it would have just made me look even worse. But now in hindsight, I look back on it and I think, you know, the jury may have actually appreciated the fact that I'm putting it all out on the table for you. I don't have to tell you about this, but I'm going to tell you about this because it's the only way that you're ever going to be able to come to the right conclusion. You're going to have to know everything. So you said you could decide the case based on the evidence that's in front of you, and I'm going to believe that you can, and, and, and I should have put it out there on the table for them. It would have taken away the, the state's ability to present this evidence without being checked and without being um, backed up. Made me look bad. I mean, it made me look bad. I mean, I got it. I testified. I got up there and I testified to exactly what I'm telling you. When we were talking, I was talking about the case that I'd been arrested for, and I wasn't saying any. You know, I wasn't. We weren't even talking about the murder at the Clark gas station. I'm telling you, as soon as they checked my chin and my ears, they didn't care about. The Clark case. They were concerned about the case I've been arrested for. Hindsight's always 2020. Sam, Jamie had mentioned that there was a task force set up to try and solve a string of robberies in Bloomington and that the Clark murder was high priority on the list. How did the task force begin to drag Jamie into all of that? Well, Jamie had been in trouble before, so from everything we've read, we think it was just a usual suspect kind of thing. We know now that they had several suspects. There are over 600 leads that we got through FOIA, and we've identified five alternative suspects, and these are people that they did not, well, they cleared, but they didn't say how they were cleared or or why they were cleared. Between October 1988 and September of 1992, there were 33 armed robberies, according to the Panagraph, and that's why that task force was set up. Now, the rumor mill is that those robberies stopped after Jamie was arrested for freedom, but in fact, there were eight robberies after he was arrested for freedom, including four Clark oil stations. So in 1991 alone, there were 17 robberies. So, I mean, there was a very good cause for very good cause for a task force. But there was only a couple of people that I've seen that robbed multiple places and got arrested for that. And that was like three the task force was looking at it like there's one person or two people doing this whole everything, but then they landed up arresting different people for this. You and know, it didn't hold up anyway because there were so many robberies after Jamie's arrest. Exactly. I mean, exactly. Tam, is it illegal to force a suspect to stand up in a lineup against their will? I can't speak to the legality of, of something because I'm not current on the case law and I'm not an attorney, but Tara did state in an appeal that 
a defendant does not have the right to refuse to participate in a lineup according to a decision made by the Supreme Court in 1967. However, in this situation, bringing up Jamie's supposedly uncooperative behavior at trial prejudiced the jury and that he should have gotten a new trial because of this. In 1985, Appellate Court of Illinois ruled that reluctance to comply is okay, consistent with the response of a cautious, innocent person who would want to seek the advice of counsel before submitting. And I think it's important to note Jamie refused to stand in the lineup based on the advice from his attorney and that Pitzel did not bring that attorney letter out. There was a letter that the attorney wrote Charles Renard and said that his client was not going to stand in a lineup and that was not brought out in trial. What do you do when your attorney comes to you and says they're going to make you stand in a lineup, but I advise you not to do it because we know that misidentification is a thing. And then when they try to force him to go to the lineup, his attorney is then saying, okay, well, you have to do it. You can't refuse it. And he was angry about that because he's like, okay, well, wait a minute. You just told me this, you know, a few days ago that misidentification is a thing. And now you now you're saying that I have to stand in this lineup that could definitely make you unnerved. Sure, to put him in a really bad position. It was a horrible position to be in. Again, there was no evidence of the way they made it sound nervous and agitated and scared. Uh, He was more aggravated and angry that he had to. And they also didn't bring out the fact that several people had refused to be in that lineup from the county jail. They were trying to get people and they were like, no, they wanted him in that lineup. For sure. Right. Now, we mentioned in this episode that Detective Crow did clear Jamie of the Clark murder shortly after the 1991 lineup. Now, how did he clear him? Well, there was a police report early on that said he was cleared, that he had no earring and no chin scar. Of course, there was a rumor mill by then. There was a lot of rumors going around, but one of them was that Jamie did it. Jamie and Stretch did it. Blah, 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 blah. There were a lot of people named. But again, over the years, you can look through those reports and you can see where Crow cleared. Jamie was cleared. This this lead was cleared this long ago and make a reference to that original report where he cleared him. But Jamie also took a polygraph for Crow and uh, he wouldn't do it early on, but he did it in about 93 or 94. And he was like, if y'all leave me alone about this, you know, I'll do it and I'll do it for you because he had a rapport with Crow, and he trusted him for some reason (laughs) that I'm unaware of why, but he did. Crow said that he didn't think that he did it after he passed that polygraph. Now, Crow retired in 97, and that's when Katz and Barkas took over the case, and that was around 98. In 99, Susan and Jamie were arrested. So after seven years of investigation, by the seasoned Detective Crow, who was there the first night on the scene and had worked on this case all this time, they had an arrest in less than two years. They never investigated anyone else for this crime. You can see the difference between the reports from early on all the way up until Crow retired, where he's looking at these different things and looking at these different people, investigating these different leads, 
they were saying when Katz and Marcus came on, they told everybody that they interviewed, we're going back and we're interviewing everybody. We're going back through the case and we're interviewing everybody. But they didn't. They only interviewed anybody related to fingering Jamie Snow for this, pointing the finger at Jamie Snow. The investigations are like night and day, but they did have all of those leads. And what about all of those leads where they cleared because they didn't have a chin scar and an earring that may have been good leads? Someone of color, you know, that they cleared because they didn't match the description. And Jamie didn't either. He never had that either. They just, that part just went away. They didn't follow the evidence. They just had their sights on one thing. Obviously on one thing. Definitely. That was Jamie Snow and they were going to get him for it. Leslie, Tam had mentioned that, that, of course, Jamie and Susan were arrested. They were put on trial, on separate trials. Detective Crow was questioned in-depthly about the lineup in Susan's trial, but not in Jamie's trial. How was Crow underutilized in Jamie's trial? In Susan's trial, the state used Crow as a witness to the lineup only. He was the lead investigator for more than six years, but the only questions they had for him the entire trial were about Jamie Snow's lineup, but at Susan's trial. He even admitted he never even spoke to Susan once. So when her defense attorney, Steve Skelton, got to cross-examine him, He started at the beginning, making him verify the accuracy of Martinez's statement from the night of the crime. He also then had him specifically verify that Martinez could not pick him from a mug book just months after the trial, even though there were two up-close photos of Jamie in there. And he was able to point out that those photos that were included were much more detailed than what Martinez would have been able to see in the lineup anyway. He also got Crow to concede that although he tried to be fair in the lineup, there were some people who didn't look like Jamie, and the lighting was adequate, which rebuts Martinez's claim that he couldn't see well because of the dim lighting. He also had Crow admit that Martinez picked the wrong two people from the lineup altogether. While the state had Crow and others say that Jamie appeared nervous, Skelton was able to get Crow to admit that he was actually angry which is all he ever even wrote about Jamie's behavior in his original police report anyways. And he also added in at the very end that Jamie was six foot tall, which is not the suspect Martinez always claimed to see. However, at Jamie's trial, the state asked even fewer questions of Crow. Even though he had many interactions with Jamie before the Clark murder and throughout his entire investigation, and he filed numerous reports on him, requested his polygraph, interviewed his wife, They just barely asked him anything, and that stinks like something rotten to me. In the very least, it's keeping information from the jury. All the state asked him, the same prosecutor in fact, was if he conducted the lineup, if Jamie was uncooperative, and if Luna picked him. They did not even mention Martinez once, and that was strategic. They did not mention him, hoping that Pitzel would not lay the foundation to ask questions about Martinez to him. They didn't directly bring up Martinez, So he couldn't just go in blazing and asking the questions. He'd have to carefully develop those questions leading into the subject of Martinez. And he just didn't even try. However, Pitzel was keen to one thing that could have helped a little. And he tried, but it was delayed by an objection. He noticed that at Susan's trial, Crow stated that Jamie was the only one in the lineup who did not volunteer. So he tried to ask Crow about that testimony. 
in an attempt to get him to admit that there were other people who were also asked from the jail who did in fact refuse too. And it wasn't just Jamie, but the state objected immediately because they did not have the actual transcript out in front of them to read from. So the judge said they could recall Crow later when they found the transcript, but then when later came along, he disallowed it. And they just let this key witness go. The guy who was an expert on the case for six years, he was barely utilized by either side. What happened was they ended up getting the transcript and then the judge just wouldn't let them recall Crow and he was just like, I don't exactly remember exactly what he said, but he said something along the lines of, you know, recalling him just for that one statement. And I think what it was that they were trying to get from Crow was they wanted him to testify like he did in Susan's trial that there were other guys who were refusing to stand in the lineup. That it just wasn't wasn't just me, but that when they were going around the county jail and trying to get guys to testify, that there were other guys that were that were refusing to stand in the lineup. So they were going to use that, you know, to argue to the jury that just because you don't want to stand in a lineup is not some sort of uh, indication of your guilt. It's not a guilty conscience. There were other people that didn't want to stand in it, too. You know, and I don't even know why they, I, I have no idea why they needed the transcript. I don't know what they needed the transcript for. What do you need the transcript for? What's the judge need the transcript for to follow along with? I mean, you get him up on the stand and you ask him good questions. The judge was the judge in the first trial. He wasn't following through the transcripts from Susan's trial when Danny Martinez was on the stand or Carlos Luna or Gerardo Gutierrez or any other witness that testified in, in the trial. He wasn't saying, oh, wait a minute, nope, hold up, can't let you introduce that that testimony until I get a transcript from the first trial so I can follow along with the transcript. I don't know what was going on behind the scenes, but from the time that they tried to ask him those questions to the time that they got the transcript and then we, we came back in, all of a sudden now they decided they weren't going to let him call, recall Crow to testify to that. So I, I don't know what happened with that. Had they been prepared, they would have had the transcript in their hand so that when Crow said, you know, I don't really recall, they could have said, okay, we've got the transcript right here. Will this refresh your memory? I mean, that's what you do with a witness. You, you have whatever questions you're going to ask this person, if you're prepared to question this person, you have everything right there ready to go so that if the person says, well, I don't recall or whatever, you can refresh their memory with what you got. So for them, for Pat Riley to say, oh, well, we don't have the transcript right here, we'll have to get it, is just uh, uh, an example of their, their being unprepared. They should have anticipated Crow saying, I don't recall. Leslie, Detective Russell Thomas's testimony over the years was kind of similar to what we saw with Danny Martinez, where it changed to fit a narrative and then just got worse and worse over time. What exactly did he change and how did it get to the point where he was telling Jamie's jury that he and his partner both believed Jamie shot and killed Bill Little? In Thomas's original report about his interview with Jamie, the one his partner prepared for him, all he said was that Jamie allegedly said he didn't rob anyone He didn't understand how he could be charged if he didn't have a weapon, and he could provide information to clear up the robberies, but wanted guarantees from them that they were just unwilling to provide. He said Jamie stated he wanted to cooperate and tell the truth, but he had to think about it. And that's it. 
He testified to this exactly at the grand jury trial when Jamie was indicted, and those charges were later dismissed. In fact, the jury seemed to be keen that this was not enough information because they made Thomas verify that Jamie did nothing and had no weapon, and he did verify that. At Susan's trial nine years later, we all of a sudden hear about the conversation in the backseat of the car, where Thomas refused to read Miranda rights to Jamie, even though he admitted to having the Miranda card right in his pocket to read off of, and that this case was a high priority. He said he was so concerned about coercing him in the backseat of the car and having an intense conversation with him while he was armed, so he just kept deflecting Jamie's alleged questions about why he was a suspect in the Clark murder, apparently for a whole 15 minutes. But when they went into the interview room, and he insisted Jamie kept talking about the high-profile case just 25 days after the murder, he then didn't feel compelled to even write it down. Now, five months later at Jamie's trial, the story gets worse, like with everybody else. The story elaborates into Jamie supposedly only being concerned about the Clark murder and not at all about the robbery in which he was just forcibly arrested for at his sister's house. He said Jamie continually asked him about the murder in the backseat of the car and allegedly now asked, quote, what would happen to me if I knew something about the murder? He says he even wanted to talk about the murder after he was Mirandized in the interview room for two hours. And at one point, he even got so heated that he jumped out of his chair and accidentally touched an officer. Now, he says Jamie asked how he could be charged with a murder when he didn't even have a gun, not the robbery, as Thomas wrote in his actual report. He actually wrote down the word rob and then testified to the grand jury about it, also using the word robbery, never murder. Thomas then gets back to his original report and starts to say that Jamie said, what do you want me to say? And he says the truth. And Jamie said he's afraid to incriminate himself, but is willing to co cooperate later. So you see at Susan's trial, they're introducing this secret car ride conversation about the highest priority murder in town. And then when she gets off by Jamie's trial, they just replace the word rob with murder and then circle back around to how scared and agitated he was about it. That's how they pulled that one off and Pitzel let them get away with it. And just to reiterate, there was nothing in that police report from Freedom, that car ride, they said nothing about a murder. And Jamie might have said this before, but in case he didn't, they didn't go search his sister's house, get a warrant to find a weapon because there was no weapon at Clark. You know, they didn't go to his house and search it, try to find a weapon. They weren't knocking on people's door, asking them about the Clark murder. They weren't doing any of that in reference to Jamie Snow being a suspect. In the murder case, I mean, really, it's simple. They went there, they checked his chin and his ear and saw that he didn't have a scar. And they were all about the freedom robbery. That's what they were arresting him for. And they didn't say anything about the Clark murder. Not until Jamie, not until his sister called him crying, saying that, that why are they arresting you for this Clark murder? Then he asked the detectives, why are you telling my sister that? That's when the Clark murder came up. Right. So they just twisted it around. They used the same testimony in the grand jury of the freedom robbery as they and his and his testimony in the Clark murder 10 years later. They used the same as Leslie said, they were just replacing Rob with murder. That's insane. They lied. They lied on the stand. They knew what they were doing. And we have proof of that. Yeah. 
Leslie, Pitzel did cross-examine Russell Thomas for a long time. I mean, even longer than Steve Skelton spent on him during Susan's trial. But we know now, obviously, that he wasn't nearly as successful or successful at all. Uh, where did he go wrong? The biggest mistake Pitzel made was not questioning Russell Thomas about his grand jury testimony. Yes, he brought up his interview report and ruthlessly made him admit that he never included the word murder once. He did a real good job at that. But he didn't even mention the testimony he gave to the grand jury, where he also didn't use the word murder once, and even said himself that Jamie was not accused of ever having a weapon. Skelton didn't bring this up in Susan's trial either, so if Pitzel was trying to wing it and just copy him, he wasn't prepared. By Jamie's trial, as you just heard, the story about the car ride had gotten so out of control and exaggerated so much, now with actual quotes being used. And obviously, Pitzel was not expecting that, and he could not combat it without proper pretrial preparation. The other terrible thing Pitzel did was bring up that thing he liked to say over and over again, that thing where he goes, well, you didn't see Bill Little get shot, so how do you know it was Jamie? Like, why would you ever say that, especially to a cop? It's outrageous. He actually tried to get Thomas to agree on the stand that he was wrong in his belief Jamie was the shooter because he didn't see him do it with his own eyes. What the hell? Of course Thomas was offended and doubled down and then actually said he and his partner both believed Jamie Snow killed Bill Little clear as day to the jury because Pitzel encouraged those words to come out of his mouth. The other issues were in what he didn't ask, how he didn't attack his credibility in other ways. Charles Renard got Thomas to say his report was only half a page long. So why didn't Pitzel ask him if it was a normal procedure to reduce a two-hour-long interview down to half a page? And since he said Jamie was a murder suspect after that interview, why didn't Pitzel ask him to describe the murder investigation he did after Jamie left? What kind of surveillance did they do on Jamie after this? None of that was asked to Russell or even Crow. And I'd also like to point out that at the beginning of Pitzel's cross-examination of Thomas, he gets him to admit that he is only now a patrol officer, no longer a detective, and he makes a dig at him. He says, okay, then I will call you Officer Thomas from now on. And I enjoyed that dressing down thoroughly, but it made me wonder, was he demoted? Why was he no longer a detective after serving 30 years on the force? He was a detective since 1989, so what happened? Why didn't Pitzel bring that up and just ask him to attack his credibility? So as you can see, Pitzel failed miserably with this witness and actually did some damage of his own. Sam, these sound like a lot of serious issues that can be taken up on appeal. What has gone on with these over the years in the courts? Well, he lost his direct appeal. And then he's filed a post-conviction petition and then amended it with new evidence. What's important here is that, yes, he's filed this. The judges have denied for various reasons. They've denied over the years. But he can't even get an evidentiary hearing. And and as we move further into this, you'll see why that's so important. He has never, these people have never been heard in court on appeal. These discrepancies have never been heard by a judge from the witness so they can verify and validate their credibility. For example, you know, if there was an evidentiary hearing, then we could get Danny Martinez on the stand. Carlos Luna, Juan Luna, 
Pilo, everybody that was there that night, and ask them questions about what we know now and what we know that is that is different. Charlie Crow, all, all of these issues with Thomas and Sanders. We've known people to get a new trial. We've known people that have had four trials. And it's just astounding to me with all of these issues that he has never even gotten an evidentiary hearing, which is just in front of a judge. And they bring the witnesses up and question them to see if it warrants a new trial. And I think that's the most important takeaway from this. But, you know, we're not stopping. We have other things that we can work on. And we're working on the DNA motion as well. In this episode, we explained how Jamie was implicated in an unrelated crime he did not commit and threatened with force to stand in a lineup only for charges to be dropped. When detectives and prosecutors needed a suspect for a murder eight years later, they worked together to alter an interview from an unrelated crime that would insinuate consciousness of guilt. But since the lead detective already cleared Jamie, detectives used their previous testimony from the Freedom Robbery Grand Jury in the Clark Oil Trial insinuating to the jury that Jamie was concerned about the murder. If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. But it wasn't only people of authority that lied to put Jamie away. People who were afraid of local law enforcement had their own stories for his jury. How did they get away with it? That's next time on Snow Files.